Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the opioid crisis and statewide prescription drug take-back events, firearms deer season, and a great new book about last year's Ryder Cup competition in Minnesota. But first... Governor Dayton reignited long-standing debate over the controversial Polymet plan for a copper-nickel mine in northern Minnesota when he said this week that he's moved from genuinely undecided about the project to being a supporter. MNN's Bill Werner is here with more. Well, needless to say, Scott, backers of Polymet applauded the governor's comments. We talked with Nancy Knorr from the group Jobs for Minnesotans. We're very pleased, and I, I, I want to say that we have always supported the process, and I think that is where Governor Dayton has become convinced that through this very arduous 12-year environmental review you know, process that he has now reached a place where indeed he's comfortable and we couldn't be more pleased. This will not uh, quell the fears of environmentalists. What do you say uh, to those folks who are still concerned that uh, with mining's record generally uh, throughout American history and they, they fundamentally say, yeah, there may be the new technology, but there's still this risk. Uh, and, and if there is, there's a, a, a massive uh, a problem, environmental problem. Well, and I want to appreciate that there, this has been a rigorous debate uh, from all sides of the issue. Um, but I, what I also support the governor in saying is there is risk in everything. It's our job to manage risk. It's my job to manage that risk every day. I'm here in a car. I'm pulling over to talk to you today, Bill. It's clear that we are in a position as a society where we have to learn to balance these risks because we need these metals to function in our society and as we go forward as a country. What about the job implications for northern Minnesota? Um, The name of your organization is Jobs for Minnesotans, and I assume that this is a plus as far as you're concerned. Well, it's a definite plus. There will be a number of, you know, folks put on the payroll, so to speak, as soon as PolyMed is in a position where it has its permits. When it has its permits, let's just reflect on those numbers. 360 uh, direct jobs, that's an annual payroll of $36 million, and an overall economic impact of $500 million a year just from PolyMet. You know, kudos to the Minneapolis area for hosting the Super Bowl next year. They're going to get that one shot of $500 million economic impact. But for $500 million economic impact annually, this is Northern Minnesota Super Bowl. That's Nancy Knorr with Jobs for Minnesotans. On the other side, environmentalists led by the group Friends of the Boundary Waters. Chris Knopp is one of that organization's leaders. We uh, appreciate uh, Governor Dayton's continued uh, opposition to twin metals and in sulfide mining in the in the Rainy River watershed. Um, however, we uh, at Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness uh, uh, oppose um, uh uh, PolyMet and, and uh, support protecting the St. Louis River watershed and, and Lake Superior uh, from sulfide mining. From sulfide mining, we think that is just as important as protecting the boundary waters. The the governor is saying that the, the protections are adequate. Um, I'm talking about PolyMet now. Um, not so. We agree uh, with the governor that the permitting process should be followed, and we believe that uh, if um, the permit. Uh, requirements follow the laws and regulations that it uh, is not possible to permit polymet. Well, let me ask you, what's the danger if this project actually um, becomes operational? We're uh, concerned about uh, contaminating the, the watershed. 
you know, based on the, the track record of, uh, of other facilities uh, that have been uh, permitted for, for this sort of activity. You don't think that the high-tech, the, these new high-tech systems that are touted will really do the job? The, the question is whether the, the technology is really that different than what's been used in the past. And so I think really, um, Bill, that gets at, you know, looking at uh, the permit requirements and, uh, and um, you know, following the laws and regulations. So looking at uh, um, making sure that the, the laws and regulations are, are, are followed here. That's Chris Knopp with Friends of the Boundary Waters. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return in a moment. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Saturday is National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day. Attorney General Lori Swanson is urging Minnesotans to get rid of unwanted and unneeded drugs. There are 90 locations around the state of Minnesota that are going to participate in National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day, and the goal is to make it easy for people to get unwanted prescription painkillers off their hands, or any drugs for that matter. Uh, Minnesota is in the midst of an opioid epidemic. Uh, Each year it's gotten a bit worse than the year before. Um, Last year, for example, there were more opioid-related deaths than there were uh, in 2015. And one way that um, we can help curb the opioid epidemic is to get prescription drugs that are no longer needed out of people's homes. About 70% of people who abuse prescription drugs get them for free from friends or family member, oftentimes without the knowledge of the person from whom they got them. They may be lying around in a medicine cabinet. Somebody comes over, they take the drugs um, and either use them or abuse them or perhaps sell them on the street for street value. Um, A lot of times people who have unwanted or unneeded medication in their medicine cabinet don't know how to get rid of it and, you know, they don't know what to do with it and so they keep it around year after year. Drug Take-Back Day provides a good way for people to get rid of medication. You can take it into one of these centers, drop it off. It's free of charge. Um, And by doing that, you not only can perhaps prevent the drugs from being diverted, but about 12,000 kids a year get poisoned uh, from taking prescription painkillers accidentally, you know, by finding them lying around and just swallowing them. And about 60% of those are kids under the age of five. And so by participating in Take Back Day, you can get rid of unwanted medication that you don't know what to do with and perhaps help those drug, keep those drugs from being diverted or falling into kids' hands and being uh, unlawfully or, or accidentally swallowed. You know, I, I know that you've worked pretty hard over the course of the last, uh, beyond the last year or so, to try to uh, set this trend in the opposite direction that it's been going in. How is that battle going? Well, it's still, it's a really tough drug. You know, the United States uh, has about 5% of the world population, but consumes about 80% of the world's prescription opioids. And those prescriptions have quadrupled since 1999. And so, and it's just a terribly addictive um, uh, disease. Um, You know, people, when they become addicted to drugs, the withdrawal impacts are so harsh that it's a very, very tough thing to shake. And we know that people who take prescription painkillers oftentimes morph them into taking even, you know, more uh, dangerous drugs that are sold on the streets like heroin um, or fentanyl, which can be, uh, you know, just incredibly deadly because of how potent it is. And so it is an epidemic that affects all parts of Minnesota, all walks of life. It doesn't discriminate by age or gender or income or uh, geography. It is very addictive. And so anything that we can do 
to try to stem the tide of these opioid-related deaths that we're seeing, I think is important. And this is just one way uh, that people can pitch in and help. You know, health officials that I've talked to fairly recently say that uh, physicians have gotten the message and uh, in the past they had been over-prescribing these uh, kinds of drugs to people and then getting um, folks addicted to them. Do you find that, that physicians and doctors have been getting the message and are, in fact, pulling back from that somewhat? I think it's um, getting better when it comes to, you know, people wearing sort of the white coat. Uh, I think people in the health field are more aware of, um, you know, how potent these drugs are and, you know, uh, being more careful. I mean, it, you know, used to be people would go in for a dental surgery and they might be given a month's supply routinely of drugs when they might just need a couple days at most. And so some of that, I think, has improved. I think there's more room for improvement, though. I had propose some legislation that would require continuing education, not just on opioid prescribing, but also on other ways to treat pain, uh, you know, for caregivers. As well, I had proposed something that Wisconsin did, which is to make checking our pharmacy prescribing database mandatory. So anytime an opioid is prescribed, it goes into a database, but the database is only as good as if people look at it. And many states now around the country are making it a requirement that uh, prescribers and pharmacies take a look at the database to see, you know, is that patient out there pill shopping? Are they, you know, just jumping from doctor to doctor, pharmacy to pharmacy to increase their supply of drugs? And unfortunately, the legislature did not pass that bill, but it's something I hope they'll do uh, and pass this coming session. So I, I think um, I think it has gotten better, but I don't think the problem is completely solved. And this is really an epidemic where everybody needs to pitch in, whether it's the healthcare community, uh, communities in general, law enforcement, courts, judges, you know, families. We all need to you know, pitch in and, and try to really treat it like the public health epidemic that it is. You know, in terms of what you've seen as attorney general, is this primarily a metro problem? No, not at all. It's a statewide problem. It's um, something that affects really people all over the state of Minnesota, and it affects people in really insidious ways. We've seen you know, kids who are high school athletes who do really well in sports, and then they get injured, and they start taking prescription painkillers to deal with the injury and play through the pain that they might have as high school sports have become more competitive and then eventually become addicted, and all of a sudden that you know, high school you know, star wrestler or baseball player is using heroin because you know, it can be cheaper than prescription painkillers and sometimes even easier to get. And so it's it's really a statewide problem that doesn't know any geographic boundaries. It affects the entire state of Minnesota and it it affects, you know, people high income, low income, men, women, young, older. Um, and I think the reason for that is just how incredibly potent it is and how addictive it is. And the withdrawal is so harsh from these drugs when people do become addicted. It's not that they want to keep taking the painkillers, but eventually they start taking them to deal with the pain. And then, you know, they keep taking them because of the pain that comes from withdrawal. And um, I think that's one of the reasons it's been hard to shake. Thank you to my guest, Minnesota Attorney General Lori Swanson. You can find a complete list of take-back sites on the DEA's website. Minnesota Matters will return after this.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The countdown to the 2017 firearms deer season is underway and hunters are being reminded of extensive chronic wasting disease testing that will be conducted in portions of north central, central and southeastern Minnesota. Tasha Rado has more. All hunters in affected deer permit areas will be required to have their harvested deer tested November 4th and 5th. Joining me now to discuss all the information is Lou Cornicelli, Wildlife Research Manager with the Minnesota DNR. Well, Lou, I understand that mandatory testing is going to be taking part in a couple different areas of the state. Can you tell us a little bit about those affected zones? Sure. Uh, we have actually three big surveillance zones uh, in addition to the southeastern Minnesota CWD Zone 603. So starting in the north-central part of the state with the discovery of a uh, CWD-positive farm deer in Crow Wing counties, we'll be doing surveillance uh, of deer harvested in permit areas 155, 171, 172, 242, 246, 247, 248, and 249. In central Minnesota, again, due to another uh, CWD-positive farm deer, that was actually a trace out from that Crow Wing County farm. We're going to be doing surveillance in deer permit areas 218, 219, 229, 277, 283, and 285. And then in the southeast, we have our mandatory surveillance throughout all of the deer seasons in deer permit area 603, but also all of the permit areas surrounding that zone, and those include 343, 345, 346, 347, 348, and 349 will be doing mandatory opening season surveillance. So there's a lot going on. The reason we're doing mandatory surveillance for those op- the opening weekend is we know that more than half the total deer harvest for the state comes those first two days. So it's a way for us to maximize the number of deer that we get sampled in addition to minimizing the amount of time that we have to do it. So what we'll be doing is we have surveillance stations scattered all over those zones um, and those can be found on our website at mndnr.gov slash CWD, and it's broken down by surveillance area. So what the hunter needs to do is in all of those areas, you can register your deer over the phone, online, or in person, and then you'll have to take it to one of one of, one of 46 registration stations, and those will be open from, or sorry, sampling stations, and those will be open from 7.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. on both days. So we're trying to make it as convenient as possible uh, as we can for hunters, realizing that we're also trying to save costs and, and, and maximize our opportunity to, to contact those harvested deer. And, you know, Lou, obviously when we're doing, you know, such a wide range of sampling, is there anything that hunters can be doing ahead of time to speed up that process? Yeah, there really is. And, you know, we've been doing CWD surveillance in the state for a very long time. Uh, I think we're coming up on our 15th year. Um, but there's always things that folks can do. Number one, get the deer registered, one of those three methods I talked about, phone, Internet, or in person. So that's out of the way. Um, when, you, when you have the deer in the truck or in the, in an eight on, you know, on the ATV trailer or whatever, uh, make sure the head is accessible. So put the head at the back, uh, you know, at the, on the tailgate side, and don't cover it up in tarps. You know, don't, don't tie it up on the Honda Civic. You know, just whatever makes it easier for us to actually get access to the to the head of that animal so we can take the sample. So kind of kind of be and also be prepared to where'd you kill the deer? What permit area? If you have some way um, to know um, 
uh, what township range and section you were in at the time you're where you took the deer. Kind of get that information as you as you get ready to submit uh, submit the deer for sampling. So there's kind of some basic things you can do uh, that would speed it up. If you do take a deer that you want to have a, a head mount, we have ways to deal with that. Only we can explain that at the station. So um, we've got lots of options for folks, and I think if we can get get in get out Saturday and Sunday with a little bit of uh, disruption for folks, we'll be able to answer our questions at least this year about, about the disease. And let's talk about the test results. Are you going to be notifying hunters, or how does that work? So notification is only going to come out uh, for Deer Permit Area 603, where we have uh, have found the disease. So for hunters and all the other permit areas, we're not going to be notifying individually of results. Obviously, if we find a positive um, that'll be it. We'll tell the hunter immediately, the individual hunter immediately, and um, there'll be news releases, or, you know, with respect to our findings. But no news is in the case of every area, but 603, no news is good news. Thanks again to my guest, Lou Cornicelli, Wildlife Research Manager with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. For more information on chronic wasting disease testing for the upcoming firearms opener head to the DNR's website at mndnr.gov. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A new sports book with a Minnesota flavor hit book stands this week. Award-winning national sports writer John Feinstein authored a book chronicling the 2016 Ryder Cup, which was held at Hazeltine National in Chaska. Feinstein visited the MNN studios in the Twin Cities this week and visited with MNN sports director Mike Grimm. The title of the book is The First Major, the inside story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. John Feinstein, how inside did uh, you get to go? Well, not to pat myself on the back or drop a name, but Rory McElroy sent me a text uh, on Monday, the day before the book officially published, saying that he felt like reading it that he was in the American team room. He obviously was in the European team room, and he helped take me in there, but uh, it was it, it's pretty deep in terms of inside stories and anecdotes and things that, that happened during the week. Obviously, a Minnesota flavor because it happened here no on our soil. Um, what can you tell the Minnesota listeners? Uh, how, uh, how homey will this book feel? Oh, I think it'll feel pretty homey because in addition to working with the, all the players, um, I, I worked with a, a bunch of the locals. I came up here before the Ryder Cup to get to know people, know my way around, know my way around the golf course. Chandler Withington, the pro at Hazeltine, uh, was extraordinary extraordinarily helpful to me and hosted a uh, book signing and talk on uh, Monday night uh, just before the book, book launched. Um, and Chris Trittabaugh, the course superintendent, who's a wonderful storyteller, by the way. And a great follow on Twitter, too, because he posts it, pictures of the course all the time. He's just fabulous. And, uh, um, and Patrick Hunt, who was, of course, chairman of the local committee. And one of my favorite in- interviews was Chris Winshittle, the mayor of Chaska, <laughs> who told me the whole story. You know the sign on US-12 that says, welcome to the uh, home of the 2016 Ryder Cup? That was a big battle with the State Department of, of, uh, of uh, Highways to get to put that sign up. They finally had to get the governor involved in order to get the sign up. So there's a lot of local flavor. How impressed were you with the crowds, the galleries? I mean, it was pretty pretty rowdy at times. Well, let me quote Jordan Spieth on this because I agree with him. He called the rowdies one percenters. 
And the point was 99% of the people out there were just having a good time, loving the golf, most of them pulling for the U.S., although there were plenty of mm-hmm. European fans out there. Uh, and then there was a small segment uh, that got drunk and got out of hand. And as Rory said, uh, if he'd started drinking at 7 o'clock in the morning, he'd probably be drunk at 2 in the <laughs> afternoon too. So there were some ugly moments. There really were. But it, it, was a, a, it really was a small minority. Most people were just having a great time out there. And volume. I mean, this was oh, some record-setting crowds here. 55,000 people every day. They had planned for 45 to maybe 50, but they ended up with 55 on both Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and, it, you know, I don't know how all those people did it. I had the luxury of being inside the ropes. But 55,000 people, and on Saturday, and on Saturday, there's only four matches going on at once, Friday too. Sunday, you spread them out a little bit with the 12 singles matches, but it, it was amazing to see how many people were out there. Yeah, and certainly when the, the in Minnesota, you only golf eight months of the year. So if you're you get, lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky, and <laughs> you get that flavor and that taste, they, it's always one of those things they'll go if uh, you bring a tournament here. Rory and Reed, that matchup, uh, maybe some of the best drama in golf history. Absolutely. Uh, I was lucky to be walking with them. Uh, I knew that was going to be the big match, and it was the first match on Sunday, so I just started walking with them on number one. Uh, by the time it got to number eight, it was just unreal. Uh, and when Rory made that putt and you know went crazy, um, Matt Kuchar was playing the 11th match. He was watching in the locker room. He said he thought Rory was going to do a Hulk thing and <laughs> rip off the shirt. And, uh, and then Patrick turns around and makes the putt right on top of him, and I'm thinking – this could get ugly, but Rory goes over, gives him the fist bump. It was wonderful. And the moment that I, one of my favorite moments from the week is, and you can tell I'm a fan of Rory McIlroy's, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm standing on the 11th tee and Rory walks up and he comes over and he kind of grabs my arm and he goes, how cool is this? <laughs> I mean, this is the guy who's right in the middle of right. the maelstrom and he gets it. And, uh, it was it was just about as great as anything I've ever seen in golf. I mean, we got Reed pulling him a tumbo at one point, right? Yeah, he's like he did. waving him off, waving, like, the, uh-huh, waving right? the finger, which started at Glen Eagles because he waved a finger at the crowd and gave him the shush sign, right. and Rory gave the crowd the shush sign. And walking to the ninth tee, he said to Patrick, he said, "You know, uh, flattery is the highest form. Uh, excuse me." Imitation is the highest form of flattery because he he was imitating what Patrick had done at Glen Eagles. Something about the Ryder Cup can't be replicated. Yes, the majors are good. Mm-hmm. I would think if I was in charge of a course and you gave me the chance, I think I'd do a Ryder Cup over, say, a U.S. Open. I couldn't agree with you more. That's why I call the book the first major uh, because I think it's the best event in golf. And obviously, it makes a player's career to win a major championship, but they all want to be part of the Ryder Cup because they know they're going to feel emotions they can't feel anywhere else. You don't see players doing the things they do at other events in uh, in the Ryder Cup at other events. You just don't see it. And so uh, I that's why, as I said, that's why I called it the first major. And I'm a member of Congressional in Washington, and they've been pursuing another U.S. Open. And I've said, forget the U.S. Open. We want a Ryder Cup because right. there's nothing like it. Yeah, it's amazing. And you get it's a one event where you have rooting interest a little bit, and it's okay, right? I mean, right. It's, all right. It's, it's allowed. You're, you know, like if, if somebody cheers a, a shot going in the bunker from the visiting team, the players understand. As I said, a few people always go over the line, whether it's played here or in Europe. Uh, but most of them get it's a partisan event. And Roy made an interesting point that he said that one of the difficult things about playing on the road in the Ryder Cup is he's used to Americans cheering for him because he's so popular and he's such a good player. And he said when, when, they, when they start to get profane and they're up close the way you can only get in golf, it's Rory's a big football fan because he lives over here so much of the year. He says, you know, when somebody's calling you names and you're playing football, you don't hear it. Mm-hmm. But when someone's three feet away from you, 
you hear it. Yeah, no question. Uh, Tom Lehman was a Minnesota or is a Minnesotan, a native Minnesotan. He yeah. was kind of behind the scenes as an assistant captain. Uh, did you cover him at all in the mm-hmm. book? And he yeah. got very emotional afterwards having this on his home soil. A lot of Americans got very emotional because it's been so long since we'd won. Uh, Bubba Watson weeping uncontrollably, never been part of a winning Ryder Cup team. And there are some stories in the book. I don't want to give the whole thing right. away. But about Tiger Woods and about how much this meant to him, even just as a vice captain. Because remember, he'd only been part of one winning Ryder Cup team in his great career in 1999 in Boston. And uh, Sunday night, when the when the teams were together in the American team room, got very emotional in a lot of ways. And Tiger was right in the middle of that. Um, but yeah, Tom Lehman is certainly part of the book. He was Davis's, Davis Love's first vice captain because of his ties to Minnesota, because he'd been a captain back in 2006. And he had a lot to do with decision-making on the ground here. You know, he was the one who said to Davis, we want the Sheraton Bloomington. That's going to be the best hotel for location. And it's just been renovated. They spent $18 million hoping to get the Ryder Cup teams there. So Tom, of course, has a role in the book. Yeah. The name of the book is The First Major, the inside story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. It has hit bookshelves this week. Obviously, Amazon and the standard places as well. BarnesandNoble.com. All, uh, I signed a bunch of books um, at uh, a couple bookstores here in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, and uh, and had a great time while I was here, as I always do. Yeah, absolutely. Great to see you. Thanks. Great work. All your books are wonderful. I look forward to reading this one. My pleasure. Great to see you. That's author John Feinstein with Mike Grimm. The book is available at all major bookstores and book websites. It's called The First Major, The Inside Story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.